because his teacher, Miss Crabtree, which I think is the name of every third grade teacher, walked up the steps, walked around the corner, put her hand on his shoulder and said, Mark, you are undoubtedly the most creative little boy I have ever met. No one's ever thought to lead the Lord's Prayer, which is so much more important than the Pledge of Allegiance. She reframed his experience. What was going to be a nightmare turns into one of his fondest memories. I wish I could do that for you. I wish I knew your story and could help reframe it in the light of Christ. But here's the good news. My Jesus can and does. He doesn't just erase your stories. He reframes them so you can speak out of all the ways God has taken you from where you were to where you are. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Don't you love a good story? Paul Harvey told a story many years ago about a couple, newlywed couple, that moved to a snowy area down in the valley. They had been told that some of these blizzards can erupt quite quickly, so just be on guard about that. He worked pretty far away, and so he's driven pretty far away to go to work when he hears that a blizzard has quickly come up. He tries to call home, but the phone lines are down. He gets a little nervous. So he gets in his car and he drives, and it takes several hours. By the time he gets to where his village is supposed to be, there is a roadblock. He gets out, and he tries to trudge through the snow, and he gets to where his front door is supposed to be, and it's completely covered with snow. He screams out for his wife. To hear's no answer. So grabs a shovel that he had brought with him from his trunk, and he begins to dig towards the front door. He gets to the front door after quite a while. He swings the front door open. There's his wife sitting on the front uh, in the pew, uh, the pew, the couch right there in the living room. And she says, my hero, and wraps her arms around him. And it's a great moment. He's going to tell it the rest of his life. Of course, there were some neighbors who were there to see and to tell the rest of the story. You see, the house was built on two levels, and the blizzard had all come in from the east, and the snow was entirely piled up on the front of the house, but not the back of the house. And when he screamed out for his wife's name, she goes out the back door, walks around the corner, sees him digging frantically and says, this is too good to pass up, and goes back inside and waits for her hero. I love that story. I love what love compels us to do. If you want to hear a great love story, look at the end of Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ our Lord? I am convinced, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was in May of 2013, Maya Angelou appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show. The award-winning American poet sat opposite Oprah and began to tell a story, a moment in her life which centers around the realization of God's personal and unfathomable love. A man named Frederick Wilkerson had given her a book and told her to read it. 
Listen to Maya Angelou tell the rest of the story. I read the words, God loves me. He said, read it again. So I said, God loves me. He said, read it again, read it again. And finally I said, God loves me. There was a pause in her words as the emotion began to flow. Then she continued, It still humbles me that this force that made the leaves and the fleas and the stars and the rivers and you loves me, Maya Angelou. It's amazing. And that's why I am who I am. Yes, because God loves me. And I'm amazed by it. And I'm grateful for it. I imagine someone in your life thinks you are pretty special. Maybe you've got a little boy that thinks you just hung the moon. Maybe you've got a little girl that just worships the ground you walk on. But I will tell you right now, no one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. And sometimes... You or I will look in the spiritual mirror and we'll think, boy, there's just not much there to write home about. And we'll think about our worst moments and think, I can't imagine. If you really knew me, I don't know if you'd love me. And I'm telling you, my God knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you. And when you had absolutely nothing to offer him, when you had nothing to offer him, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, my God so loved the God-forsaken world, that he died for you. He didn't just say it in words. He said it by wrapping his arms around the cross and said, I love you this much. Now, if my God could love you like that when you had nothing to offer him, what makes you think now in the midst of your struggles and fears and temptations and doubts that he could love you less? My God couldn't love you more. He is for you. And that's good news. God's love is limitless and his grace is amazing. Those words go together, don't they? Love and grace. And what kind of great doctrine comes from a deep realization of God's love and grace? Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells us about a British conference that took place. Well, they had religious professors from all over the world talking about what makes Christianity unique. They went through all the major doctrines you can think of, but they could find some parallel in other major world religions. Finally, after three days of the meeting, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. So what are you fussing about? They said, we're trying to figure out what makes the Judeo-Christian story so unique. And he said, that's easy. It's grace. Meeting adjourned. There are religions all over the world that talk about man chasing after God. It's only in the book, among the major world religions, where you find God chasing after man. I once once heard a preacher make a statement. Sometimes those overstatements are overstatements, but they mean something. They, They catch something you don't catch any other way. And he said... You want to know what part I played in my salvation? Let me tell you something. I, for years, ran away from the cross as hard and as fast as I could go, and that was my part. But God chased me down to the foot of the cross, and that was his part. God's grace 
is amazing and his love is limitless. Now, if it's that amazing, and if everybody's looking for it, you'd expect to see signs. It was that song, Amazing Grace, that Judy Collins, a, a pop music singer, in 1978 walked into an empty church building, recorded a cappella, and it reached a number 15 on the pop music charts. Story is told about the agnostic actor W.C. Fields, well known for criticizing the Bible, who was once caught in his dressing room reading the Bible. When he was caught, he slammed it shut and said, I'm just looking for loopholes. Yeah, maybe. But I suspect he was looking for grace. Everybody wants it. Everybody's looking for it. And if everybody wants it, everybody's looking for it, you would think that anybody who's ever darkened the door of a church building, ever met a preacher, ever run into a Christian, would know about it. But 35 years ago at the Faulkner Lectureships, Franklin Camp, speaking as an older preacher, said, if I could do it all over again, I'd preach more on grace. It's right there on every page of Scripture. It's right there at the very beginning when God looks at the earth and sees everything has gone the wrong way. In Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's right there in the last verse of the New Testament. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, first and last. But you see, the the most popular sermon at the turn of the 18th century all along the coastline in New England was a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm not making this up. This was the most popular sermon. And the sermon said that God, when he looks at you, he abhors you. That's King James for hates you. He sees you as worthy of nothing like anything except some loathsome insect. And he's hanging you over the fires of hell, waiting for you to mess up so he can let go and be justified in doing so. And for every white-knuckle conversion, you know what that is. That's when you hang on to the pew in front of you so tight, your knuckles turn white. For every white-knuckle conversion, there were two that walked out the back door, committed suicide after thinking about a God like that. And I want to tell you, if you've never heard the gospel of grace or the story of God's love that's so obvious in Scripture, John 3 and verse 17 is in my Bible, it's in your Bible, it was in Jonathan Edwards' Bible when he preached that sermon. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. God sent his son into the world to save it. My God's in the saving business. Jesus didn't come to tell us that we're going to hell. He came to tell us we don't have to go. It's an amazing story that my Jesus looks at you and says, I have died in your place. I've taken your, your place and I've given you new life. All I ask of you is that you recognize what I've done for you and give your life to me. I'm here for you. I'm with you. I became one of you. God's grace is limitless, and it is amazing. It's a message that Paul wanted the church to understand, to grasp, and to preach. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives 43 commands. 
An imperative is a statement where you're supposed to do something. 43 of those in the book of Ephesians. I'll give you an example. In chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, remember. Now, that doesn't sound like a hard command, but it is a command. Remember. The reason why I want you to notice that is because there are six chapters of Ephesians, 43 commands. That is the only one in the first three chapters. Paul says, I've got 43 things I want you to do for the Lord. I'm going to say 42 of them for the second half of the book. Because long before I tell you what God demands from you, I want you to fully grasp what my God has done for you. You find the motivation, the encouragement, the reason to give your life to Christ by hearing what God has done for you in Christ. So in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons according to the good pleasure of his grace by which he has shown us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption of our sins through his blood, according to the praise of the glory of his grace. The language of adoption is important. The Bible says we're born again. That's very clear. But sometimes the language of born seems to carry with it the sense of obligation. I have a beautiful, smart, funny daughter. I love everything about her. But there's also a sense in which I'm obligated to take care of her. She was born to us. The language of adoption is Paul's way of reminding you, you had nothing to offer God. God wasn't obligated, but he chose you in him before the foundations of the world. I want you, says my God. And if it's clear in chapter one, what grace has done for us. Chapter two is where Paul talks about what grace has done to us. You may say, it's great to talk about God. I love the language about God, but let's talk about me. Okay, here's chapter two, verse one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath, hating God and hating one another. But God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, saved us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And the language in chapter 2 is that God didn't just pull us up out of the muck and the mire that we put ourselves in. He kept pulling. And according to chapter 2, in God's mind, he has already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Heir to all things in Christ. What grace does for us is obvious. What grace does to us is, first of all, it changes our value. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth the while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid for this old violin? Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Who'll make it two? Two dollars? Who'll make it three? $3 once, 
the hours twice, going for three, but no. From the back of the room, a gray-haired man came forward and took up the bow. Wiping the dust off the old violin and tightening up all the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. And the auctioneer, in a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for this old violin as he held it up with the bow? A thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. And the people cheered. But some of them said, I just don't understand. What changed its worth? Then came the reply. The touch of the master's hand. You know, if we take a look at ourselves, we have to be real honest. In our own sin, in our own self-righteousness, in our own list of selfish ambitions, what are we worth? Not much to write home about. But when Christ has written his name in our hearts, it changes our worth. Our worth is far above rubies because we are heir to all things in Christ because God doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in our Savior. Grace doesn't just change our value. It changes our perspective. Three times, God had to tell his people as they were traveling through to Sinai, I didn't choose you because you're smart. I didn't choose you because you're pretty. I didn't choose you because you're righteous. In fact, the nicest thing he said about them is that you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. He says, I chose you because I love you. And if it changes our perspective, it means we can never look on at anyone else. Everyone in God's creation made in his image is somebody worthy of God's grace. And someone who in Christ can have equal footing, the foot of the cross. Now, Paul isn't done. Paul doesn't stop his preaching with what God's done for us. He wants to talk about what grace does through us. And so in chapter 4 and verse 29, Paul says, Don't let any corrupt communication, evil talk, come out of your mouth. But rather, what will edify, like, seas- like uh, seasoning your words with salt, so that it might impart grace to those who hear. Paul says, if you've been graced, grace others. I don't know how many times in your life you've needed to be graced. Mark was in the third grade when he was asked to lead the Pledge of Allegiance in front of his elementary school. It's a big deal. So he practiced every day, had a little stepladder in his bathroom, got up in the stepladder, looked in the little mirror and practiced, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. He was going to get it right. He was going to perform well. Friday came. He's hiding behind the curtain on stage. He can hear his little classmates shuffle into the assembly, bouncing into each other, bouncing into the chairs, and he's practicing. I pledge, I pledge, I pledge. He walks out from behind the curtain. He looks at his little friends. He does the universal motion to stand. They all stand, and he thinks, so far, so good. 
He turns to the flag, puts his hand over his heart. It's beating so fast. And he begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He was saying the Lord's Prayer. And that's not all. They were saying it with him. About halfway through, somebody on the front row yells out, No, you're doing it wrong. And he realizes what happened. In his own words, he ran around behind the curtain and huddled in the corner with wet pants. Mark was my psychology teacher when I was in in school. I think I know why he went into psychology. This was a moment he's going to remember forever, and he does. Greatest moment in his life, he says. Because his teacher, Miss Crabtree, which I think is the name of every third grade teacher, walked up the steps, walked around the corner, put her hand on his shoulder and said, Mark, you are undoubtedly the most creative little boy I have ever met. No one's ever thought to lead the Lord's Prayer, which is so much more important than the Pledge of Allegiance. And in that moment, she reframed his experience. What was going to be a nightmare turns into one of his fondest memories. I wish I could do that for you. I wish I knew your story and could help reframe it in the light of Christ. But here's the good news. My Jesus can and does. He doesn't just erase your stories. He reframes them so you can speak out of all the ways God has taken you from where you were to where you are. And I want you to know, my God will do that for you. Even church folks sometimes believe the lie that's pumped into our ears every day. If you just perform better, maybe you'll be something. If you were just a little bit taller, just a little bit prettier, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline. Keep trying. If you just were a little bit richer, if you just had something more to you, then you'd be accepted, then you'd be loved, then you'd be somebody. And my God says, I wanted you when you had nothing. And I want you now. And in me, you're enough. My grace is sufficient for you. This morning, my Lord wants to reframe your story. We take your old life, we bury it in the waters of baptism. And when you come up out of the water a new person, your story starts over. It's a story of redemption and hope and new life and refreshment. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.